following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. I got my first driver's license when I was 15 years old. And uh, yes, that went as well as you think uh, it probably went. Uh, the state of Arkansas used to give out these hardship licenses. Um, and I do the air quotes because the bar for a hardship, so-called, was very low. So my mom worked out of town. Like, All right, great, hardship, you're good. Um, and don't go where you're not supposed to. Don't have anybody in your car, but you are free to drive. And I remember vividly, the thing I was most excited about getting to drive was getting to inflict my musical preferences on the people of Malvern, Arkansas and the wider Hot Spring County community. And I remember still the first CD that I got whenever I stepped into my white, new to me, Chevy Trailblazer. And it would have been 2008 and I was 15, so you could imagine that the first CD that I had was the Temptations Gold album. The Greatest Hits Collection, the definitive Greatest Hits Collection, if you're interested, of my favorite Motown group. You might know them from their songs, My Girl, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. I literally could go on and on. And they had this hot track back in 1963 called I Want a Love I Can See. I Want a Love I Can See. That's number two if you ever buy the album. Albums were these things, it was like Spotify, except you paid $10 one time and you only had 12 songs and you had to listen to them over and over again until your mom gave you 10 more dollars. The, the song starts, as Paul Williams sings, I want a love I can see. That's the only kind that means a thing to me. Don't want a love you have to tell me about. That kind of loving I can sure do without. He's only interested in a tangible relationship one that he can see, one that he can feel. If he can't see it with his own two eyes, how can he trust it? Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 115. Israel, the people of God, are looking for a love that they can see. Their relationship with their invisible God was starting to fray. 
And so they were starting to take applications from other gods, those worshipped by their foreign neighbors. There is a love that they can see, or so they thought. Psalm 115 was written to remind the people of God who their God is and why they should trust in him alone. You know, sometimes we treat psalms like a a loose collection of encouraging religious sentiment. But this psalm in particular shows us that these religious poems are not art for art's sake. This is a poem with a point. The author is trying to make an argument through literary and rhetorical devices, but he is very much trying to make an argument to his audience. Now, we're not exactly sure who wrote it or why, you know, usually we want to discern the historical context, the, the reason, the situation into which something was written. Uh, but this text assumes a lot of that background information. But sometimes you can glean a little bit of the historical context by seeing what the text emphasizes itself. And a cursory reading of the text reveals that Israel was at a low point. They were either being taken away from the promised land, were in the process of being taken from that promised land, or had just been taken into captivity. And we know that in part because of Psalm 15's warning against idolatry. Israel tended to get wandering eyes when times got tough. They even thought about asking Egypt, which if you remember from last week, Egypt, not exactly friends to the people of God, Egypt of all people to help them stave off the exile that God had said he was bringing to them as a judgment for their sins. So they were considering fixing idolatry with a problem, using idolatry rather to fix a problem created by their idolatry, which is sort of just the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. It is good to, as I said, situate these texts in their historical and literary context. So uh, to know something about why it was written and how it was written. But this morning, I want to add a third layer of context as we read this passage together. And that is its congregational context. You might have noticed, as, uh, as Miranda read, uh, the use of first-person plural. So, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Or uh, down in 18, it is we who extol the Lord, both now and forever. So, as we think about the implications of this text, I want us to think about them not only as individuals, as we are encouraged to look away from idols to trust the living God, but how it applies to us as a church, to God's new covenant people as River City Baptist Church. Thankfully, for all the things that are unclear about this psalm, the situation and all that, what is clear is the author's point. What is clear is what he wanted to make his case for and how he made it. You know, a lot of times, the hardest part of of a sermon is is taking and distilling what we think the main point of the passage is and formulating it because we believe in expositional preaching into the point of a message. Thankfully, this time around, it's quite simple. So if you're taking notes, this is the main point of Psalm 115, the main point of the sermon this morning. There is no one like the Lord. Don't waste your trust anywhere else. There is no one like the Lord. So don't waste your trust on anyone else. We know that's the main point because the author uses a a literary device called a chiasm 
to structure his exhortation. So a chiasm uses symmetry to draw attention to a single load-bearing verse or verses, sort of like a mountain with equal slopes that comes to a point so that the first verse correlates to the, uh, the, the last verse, the second to last, to the last, and so on and so forth until you get the big idea left in the middle. You reach the summit of our metaphorical mountain and you've reached the point of the passage. Right? I'll see myself out. Um, <laughs> To, to help you visualize a little bit, and this would have been better if whoever pr- printed those service guides would have put it all on one page, whoever that person was, uh, was me. Um, grab grab a, a pen or a crayon or a pencil uh, and indulge me for a second. If you're comfortable writing uh, in your Bible, this would be great. Um, I want to help you visualize what it is that I'm talking about. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can use the service guide, you can try. Um, I want you to consider, I'm not going to make you, this isn't law, uh, to write a one, big one, beside verse 1 and verses 17 and 18. That's the first pairing where you see, not, not to us, we're given glory to the Lord, we extol the Lord now and forevermore, 17 and 18. Okay, we got that. Now I want you to write a two beside verses 2 and 3, just out beside it. And then also out beside verse 16. 2 and 3, 16, write a 2 out beside it. Good. I'm hearing a lot of pages flipping. We good? Yeah. Hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully you're not marking your Bibles up for no reason. The Lord will use it. All right. And then we'll write a 3 beside verses 4 through 8, bigger section, and verses 12 through 15. So you should have a nice... One, one, two, two, three, three, right in the middle, nine, 10, and 11, an exhortation to trust the Lord. So it's like a building case up to that one point, trust the Lord. These three pairs function as three arguments, three reasons to trust God. And so we're going to use those three pairings to formulate our three-point outline this morning. Three reasons to trust the Lord. Three reasons to trust the Lord. One, he's tied his glory to our praise. Verses 1 and then verses 17 and 18. Point two, he controls everything, even his enemies. Verses 2 and 3 and verse 16. And then point three, just consider the alternative. Verses 4 through 8 and then verses 12 through 15. It's worth saying that, of course, these verses were originally penned to God's old covenant people, Israel. But they come to us now in light of the coming of Christ as those united to Jesus and indwelled by his spirit as God's new covenant people, as a warning for us to forsake idols and to cling to the one true and living God. So first, the first reason to trust God is because he's tied his glory to your praise. Verse 1, not to us, not to us. I see it's the wrong version. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In Hebrew, repetition is used like a divine exclamation mark. It's setting a priority. It's like the, the psalmist, whoever it was, starts his exhortation with a prayer. And what does he ask for? He asked for God's name to be glorified, for God to receive the glory that he is due. Verse 1 is a priority setter. It's a priority clarifier. 
the psalmist wants God to act on behalf of his people, but he wants him to do it, not to show how great they are, but to show how great he is. The psalmist gives God praise because of the covenant love that he's shown them. You see that? Because of your love and faithfulness to your name be glory. He wants them to see that God loves them, but that God's love for them is powered by an even deeper eternal motivation. God's love and his concern for his own glory. I think it's worth stopping at this point and asking a question that we don't usually ask because it's kind of a word that gets thrown around a lot. And we're kind of afraid to admit we're not exactly sure. What is the glory of God? We want to bring God glory. We exist for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. What is it? What is the glory of God? Well, I like Gerhardus Voss's definition, V-O-S, Voss, from his awesome little volumes on systematic theology. He says that God's glory is, quote, the revelation of the perfections of God outwardly like a brilliant light. The revelation of the perfections of God outwardly like a brilliant light. And John Piper, who's had a thing or two to say on the topic over the years, uh, develops that same idea further by distinguishing between God's holiness and God's glory. So he says that God's holiness is all that inner perfections that, that make God God. And his glory is the going publicness, his words, not mine, of that holiness. So God's glory is all that unique goodness that makes him God put on display for all to see. God's glory is the revelation of his beauty to be seen, but also to be enjoyed. That's what the psalmist wants, for God to be magnified as he preserves the praise of his people. Friends, this is why everything exists. Everything that you see and everything that you don't was created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7, I'll read it. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created in the image of God to be glory reflectors. Everything that we say, everything that we do, think, and feel was supposed to point back to our creator, supposed to tell the truth about just how good and majestic he is. Now, unfortunately, in our sin, we've broken our glory reflectors. In fact, we've turned them on ourselves to magnify our glory, quote-unquote, instead of God's. We were originally designed to worship Him, and now we use all of our energies to worship ourselves. And this included Israel. Israel was as sinful as they come. But God had set them apart to be stewards of His glory. He commissioned them with the same job that he had given to Adam and Eve in the garden that they had failed to do to spread his glory around the world as far as the waters cover the seas. He decided to restore their glory reflectors and to accomplish his plan of salvation through them, sinful though they were. The psalmist in verses 17 and 18 remind them of their identity as God praisers. It is not the dead, he says, who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. He's saying, yeah, big surprise, the nations around you don't praise Yahweh. 
That's probably who the psalmist is calling the dead. They don't worship the Lord, but we do as God's treasured possession, as his covenant people. And you see at the end of, of verse 18, a little, a little taste of a, an Old Testament uh, understanding of resurrection and the life to come. Where he says, we, will be, we praise and extol the Lord now and forevermore. So that God's people aren't, those, aren't just those who praise the Lord while they have breath in their lungs now. They're going to be those that praise the Lord forever. For those who fear the Lord, death is not the end of our praise. It's really just the beginning. God is glorified by the praises of his people. And that means he has a vested interest in keeping our trust in him. He had tied his reputation to his people. When Israel is threatened or they're tempted to go astray, God's name is on the line. If you've ever read Ezekiel 36, which is the big load-bearing new covenant passage in the Bible, you don't have to turn there, but uh, mark down verses 22 and 23, Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Basically, the Lord tells Israel they've blown it. My name is being profaned because of you among the nations. You've brought shame to my divine name, and so I'm going to do something about it, not for your sake, not for your sake. He says it a bunch of times. Not for your sake, but for my sake, I'm going to make this new covenant. I'm going to give you new hearts that obey me so that the nations around you look and see how great I am. I'm going to vindicate my character through restoring your praise. The new covenant creates worshipers of God. If the heart is an idol factory, as John Calvin once said, God halts production and turns it into a praise factory. Jesus purchased all the benefits of the new covenant for his new covenant people, which includes forgiveness, it includes justification, but most importantly, it includes the newfound freedom to live for the glory of God. The newfound freedom to live how you were designed to live. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is as secure as God is committed to himself. He stamped us with his triune name. He said, you want to know how great I am? I satisfied these people. I turned them from my enemies and made them people who give me praise. I've so satisfied their hearts that they're putting all their chips forward, putting all of their eggs in my basket. He loves you too much to let you trust in someone else. He loves you too much to let you go astray. He loves himself too much to let you go astray. He loves himself too much to let you go. I know sometimes God's love for himself rubs us the wrong way. But think about it. Think about how good news this is. There is no tension between God's love for himself in his love for you. He's tied his glory to our enjoyment of his glory so that the more he makes of himself, the happier we are. And the happier we are in him, the better and better he looks to the outside world. When you're convinced that there is no better gift that he could give you than himself, when there's no better pleasure to savor than his glory, then you won't be offended when God acts for his own sake. 
In fact, you'll even pray for it. Brothers and sisters, let this opening verse be a heart check, a spiritual EKG. Why do you want the Lord to act? Why do you want to put your trust in the Lord? Don't trust God to just get out of a jam. Even the eternal jam of experiencing his wrath forever. Trust the Lord. Come to the Lord. Worship the Lord because he is worthy of it. Because that's the reason that the universe exists. Trust in the Lord because he's tied his glory to your praise and is way more committed to seeing that happen than you realize. Point two. A second reason to trust in the Lord is that God controls everything, his enemies included. God controls everything, his enemies included. Verse two quotes a gotcha question from Israel's enemies. Where is their God? The psalmist wonders aloud, how could they even gather up the nerve to be able to ask such a question? But in fairness to Israel's unbelieving neighbors, you can just about see where they're coming from, can't you? Unlike their so-called gods, they had worked out that they had never actually seen Yahweh before. You pair that with the fact that Israel was about to get carried off to a land that they were really trying hard not to get carried off to, and you might forgive them from looking and thinking, where is their God? It's almost a reasonable question. Almost. The psalmist says in verse 3, good one. Where is our God, you ask? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Unlike their sorry excuses for deity, the Lord stands outside of space and time. In fact, he created space and time. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, he says in verse 16, but the earth he has given to mankind. He owns the world and he's given it as a gift to his creatures. It's important to keep in mind that Psalm 115.3 is not about geography, so to speak. So it's not that God is relegated to a distant cloud where he gets business done from his corner heaven office. He's everywhere, all the time, in all of his fullness. He can't be confined by the limitations of place and space. He says of himself in Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Jeremiah 23 again. Where is God? He's everywhere. And he sees and he controls everything, including the nations asking the question. Unlike those gods, quote unquote, again, those little G gods, those counterfeits, the Lord isn't subjected to the whims of the world. He's never caught off guard. He's never frustrated. His perfect power and his complete freedom means that he is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 doesn't appear in a theological vacuum. It's like an iceberg. So you look at it and on the surface you see our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But then if you look underneath the surface, if you look under the water, you see all of the rich 
theology that's underneath that. That so as an easy consequence of what he believes, he can say, our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. The psalmist's declaration of who God is here in verse 3 is just the natural outworking of his big God theology. I want our church to be a church that loves theology proper. And I don't mean theology that's fancy that you do while you have your your thumb pinky out while you sip tea. Um, I don't mean theology done properly, um, though I hope that that is the case. Theology proper refers to the study of God as God. We usually focus our attention on who God is for us as he's revealed himself in creation and in salvation, which makes perfect sense. We know who God is because he has sent the Son and the Spirit to rescue us from our sins. But those divine missions are meant to point us back to himself, to lead us back to praise God for who he is and not just what he does, who he's always been, not just who he is to us in time. God does what he pleases because he's eternal, because he's infinite. No one is his boss. No one is his equal. He's always existed in perfect happiness, Father, Son, and Spirit. He never changes. He never suffers. He doesn't need anything. He's never had to cancel a plan. His will never fails. All of his perfections burn infinitely pure at the same time, all the time. There is truly none like him. Sometimes it's tempting to want a God that's more approachable, a God that we can relate to a little bit better, a God that's more, frankly, like us. But you do not want an attainable God. You do not want a God that is surprised at tragedy as you are, a God who suffers alongside you, a God who needs you as much as you need him. Sometimes the the holy God of the Bible can feel distant or cold, and that might be why Israel was tempted towards those more tangible, attainable options. But a God that can change can let you down. A God that suffers is not big enough to help you when you suffer. A God that needs you will never, never be able to satisfy you. Now, a a big God isn't static or impersonal, actually just the opposite. God is an ever-flowing fountain of life and vibrancy. He is life to the full, and far from being impersonal, he has decided to share his life with us. Not because he had to, not because there was something about us that constrained him to make us and to save us. He decided out of his completely free and sovereign grace, to create us, to recreate us, so that we can know his glory. God is not like us, which makes the mystery of the incarnation that we studied this time, uh, around this time each year, so amazing. God, the eternal son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The one who does whatever pleases him was pleased to take on a human nature like ours except without sin. The one who cannot suffer suffered in our place to save us as a man. 
Jesus Christ, the God-man, executed God's sovereign plan and is reigning now in the heavens as the king of the universe. It's true that things happen in the world that God hates. God isn't the author of sin and evil, but he does rule over it. The devil has never ruined one of God's plans. Nothing has ever foiled his wise providence. And there's tension there, how God can will all things and then say that there are things that he didn't will. But there is no tension in who has the final say. Not everything pleases the Lord, but God does whatever he pleases. And I hope that even if that's confusing, I hope that you see that it's good news. I hope that you feel secure because nothing happens in your life apart from the decision of our big, beautiful, wise God. The eternally happy God, the one who created everyone and everything, controls everything and holds you in his hands, brothers and sisters. Nothing can stop the train of his salvation from chugging along the tracks. His purposes will come to pass just as he pleases. And he's pleased to give you the kingdom. Trust in your sovereign Lord because he is in control of everything, even your enemies and his. Point three. Just consider the alternatives. Why trust in the Lord? What else are you going to do? Consider the alternatives, he says, verses 4 through 7. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Israel wants to show them how steep the downgrade will be if they leave him for the idols of the nations. Where is our God, he says? Where is their God? Our God is in the highest heavens. Their God is over there. And an idol was a statue or other representation of a pagan god, a pagan deity. You would worship whatever god or gods you trusted in through these pieces of silver and gold. In this passage, we know from wood and other similar passages in the Old Testament. And you might recall in the second commandment, uh, the Lord forbids Israel from worshiping him through a graven image, an idol, like they did at the foot of Mount Sinai with the whole golden calf incident. And no doubt there was a, a real immediacy to idol worship. And you could bundle the idols together so that you didn't miss out accidentally on uh, something that the other one was offering, like you'd sign up for Netflix and Paramount Plus and YouTube TV and Hulu Plus Live Sports and on and on and on and on. You can just collect all of these idols so that you don't miss anything. And, and it seems like Israel was very attracted to how real the nations felt, the idols of the nations felt. So you could see them in a temple. You could put them up in your home. You could stuff them in your pockets and carry them around. The psalmist is asking, what good is a God that you can put in your pocket? Are you really going to put your trust in something that began in the mind of a fellow sinner? Are you really going to give your heart to something that the guy down the street made in his garage? Sure, he carved a mouth on the thing, but it's not going to say anything to you. It can't even scold you, much less give you a word of encouragement, make you a promise. It has eyes, 
They can't see you, much less anything coming down the pike that you need to be aware of. It may have ears, but it can't hear you when you cry out to it. Idols are nothing, nothing but demonic figments of fallen imagination. They have absolutely zero capacity to do anything good for you. But that doesn't mean that they're powerless altogether. In fact, we see in verse 8, they have power to do evil. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Welcome to the vicious circle that is idolatry. Instead of imaging God and bowing down to him, we turn away from him and bow down to images of things that he created. And those dead and lifeless idols make us dead and lifeless. They suck the spiritual vitality out of us. We reject the glory of God in search of something better, but we end up spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind with hearts hard to God and his word. You are what you worship. You are what you worship. You become like what you behold. If you give yourself to anything other than the Lord, you'll end up just like those idols, just like the enemies of God, dead. You want to know what's scary? That's exactly what happened to the vast majority of God's old covenant people. God sent them the prophets, said, listen to the word of the Lord, turn, today is the day of salvation. And they wouldn't listen. It's like they couldn't listen, like their new gods had stuffed earplugs in their ears as they continued to give themselves over to them. But that's not the scariest part. In Isaiah 6, God told the prophet Isaiah to tell Israel this, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Israel wanted idols more than it did him. He gave them what they wanted. Which, for people with self-destructive hearts, is the worst fate of all. God turning us over to ourselves. Idolatry wasn't just an ancient Near Eastern problem. It's a human problem. All of us have looked at God and said, eh. We've all bowed down to idols. Some of us, maybe literally. Most of us, probably not. But idols take many shapes. Security, status, sex, success, money, your family, your friends, Anything that you bow down to, anything that you lean the weight of your worship on is an idol, even if it's not made of silver, gold, or wood. And ironically, there's actually only one God behind every idol that we worship. Us. The God of self. Natural religion bows down at the altar of me, myself, and I. We want glory. We cast gods in our image to reflect us. We want our name and fame to grow. There's this sinister chicken and egg dynamic. Which comes first, the idol or the idolatry? It's almost hard to distinguish. 
we create idols for ourselves to reflect our glory back to ourselves, but we end up being curbed in on ourselves and we shrivel and die. Take money, for example. Why do people bow down to the almighty dollar? It's not probably because we have a strange infatuation with green paper. We like how it makes us feel. We like the security that we feel like it gives us. We like what people think about us whenever we have it. If you trace all of idolatry's tentacles, they come back to right here. They come back to us. They exist for our glory. We made them like us, and then they make us like them. We worship what we've become, and we become like what we worship. Lifeless and dull, dead. Anyone uh, get their screen time notification? Their, uh, this is how bad you did this week at looking at your phone? I turned mine off a long time ago. Um, I already know that I look at my phone too much. And I really noticed that this week, uh, I felt in the, just a random middle of a Tuesday or Wednesday, really anxious, just really heavy for whatever reason. And it wasn't Thursday. Well, I feel heavy because I ate all the food. Um, I just felt anxious for no apparent reason. I, I was really short with my kids. And, and then it hit me. I had been on my phone all day. The more that I look at this little screen, the less alive that I feel. The, the more that I invest in this little screen, the, the smaller my heart is. And I'm not even looking at bad stuff. I'm looking at cooking videos, Nine Marks podcasts, long-form articles about sports. But it makes my world shrink. And I curve in on myself. What I give my time to turns me into itself. And my world becomes small just like it. And you can feel its crushing weight. I wish I could say that our, our battle against idolatry stopped whenever God gave us new hearts, uh, but it didn't. God promises in the new covenant that he will remove all of the idols from our hearts eventually, not right now. For now, we have to fight to keep them at bay. Sanctification, uh, growing in holiness, is the process of saying no to idols and yes to Jesus more and more. We stop doing things that steal our trust in God, and we start doing things that build our trust in Him. We put off, we put on. We renounce, and we reclaim. But the power for progress in the Christian life comes from beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is fighting desire with desire. The more you stuff your spiritual face with the glory of Jesus, the less appetite you're going to have for sin and self. Remember, you become what you behold. You are what you worship. So behold and worship Jesus Christ and his word. Andrew Hall is going to help us think more about that tonight. This is what church membership is all about keeping one another from idols. We're like spiritual windshield wipers for one another, keeping uh, the idols out of our field of vision so that we can see Jesus's glory more clearly. It's your job, it's our job as members of this church to help flood our brothers and sisters with reminders of the beauty of Jesus. Now this idol removal service we provide one another has to be accompanied by supernatural transparency. 
What would it look like if we opened up to one another? What would it look like if we confessed the idols gnawing at our heart? What would it look like if we say, I don't, I don't know what's going on when I feel anxious. I don't know what's going on when I snap at my kids or why I'm obsessed with this electric brick. I don't know what's going on. Can you step into this and help me see what I can't see? The Lord gives us one another to give a, a, full, a full picture, a full 360 view of who we are, of what's going on, so that they can help us point that out and so they can help us take it to the cross. You can't keep yourself from idols alone. And you also can't keep yourself trusting and loving the Lord Jesus Christ alone either. Point one another to the glory of God in the gospel. Grab a Bible. Grab a good Christian book. Stick your noses in it with another member of this church. Come together and reflect on the goodness of God. Show up on Sunday to remind one another of the steadfast love of Jesus whenever we sin, whenever we stumble, whenever we're encouraged. Scheme of ways, even this afternoon, to do spiritual good to someone else. You don't even have to know them that well. Lean into that status of member, of your commitment to one another. Even if it's just a two-minute conversation after we're done here. It can even be, honestly, I would have probably preached it this way, and you can encourage each other with what you would have said. It doesn't matter. Do something to help someone else's estimation of Jesus Christ rise this morning, however big, however small. We're here to help one another see Jesus more clearly. 2 Corinthians 3.18, which Chaz read and which Andrew will explain more this evening, says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I know it doesn't always feel like it, but we are being transformed. We are being transformed. Even on days when you're tempted to give in to those little G-gons around you, inside you, God is at work in your hearts. He's at work in us. God is making us more and more like Jesus until the day that we see God face to face. My non-Christian friend, who are you bowing down to this morning? Even if you wouldn't style yourself as religious, I can guarantee that your life orbits around someone or something. And this is a warning to you. Don't trust in those idols. Don't reject the God who created you. Not only does it not work, and I think that if you're honest with yourself, you would recognize that when everybody's gone home, when it's quiet, when it's just you and your thoughts, how is what you've invested in returning to you? But not only that, you're under the wrath of God because of your idolatry. God deserves all the glory. You've refused to give it to him, and that is the most evil thing in the world, an evil that we've all done. So God's judgment hangs over you because he's good, because he deserves that praise. But this warning also comes with an invitation. Come to God through Jesus Christ. God came and he reflected, uh, Jesus came and reflected God's glory perfectly. He never sinned. He lived a life of perfect obedience that you and I failed to live. Then he died. 
He died for your idolatry, for your bowing the knee to things other than God. He took all of that judgment, all of that wrath that we deserved. If we'll just repent of our sins, if we'll just put the idol down and throw ourselves entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the grave means that you today can be freed from your love of self, can be freed from the tyranny of idolatry and freed to have your hearts satisfied forever. Just compare what the psalmist said about the idols in verses 4 through 8 to what he says about God in verses 12 through 15. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He'll bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord make you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Idols leave you lifeless. God gives life. Idols don't know anything. God remembers you. Those false gods are waterless wells. And the one true God, the God of the Bible, is an ever-flowing fountain. You probably noticed the threefold repetition of he will bless, followed by a different group of people, his people Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. Uh, There may be significance in that breakdown, but I think he kind of sums his point up at the bottom there where he says, everyone, great and small, who calls on the name of the Lord will experience his blessing. Everyone who trusts in God will receive the blessings from God. Trust your idols, be cursed, trust in the Lord, and be blessed. Jesus is the spirit-filled blessing dispenser. His blood purchased all of the benefits of that new covenant, forgiveness, a new heart, eternal perseverance, and joy and satisfaction in God. And he gives those gifts to everyone united to him through faith. All we have in Jesus and our access to all the spiritual richness of God is guaranteed because Christ offered himself once, the righteous from the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now, the blessings of God may not always be what our sinful hearts want, but they are always, we can trust, the blessings that we need. And by God's grace, after time passes and we mature, he turns what we need into what we want. So we can trust the Lord because he gives us eternal peace, because he makes his face shine upon us, because he gives us himself. Well, we've arrived at our final destination. We've reached the summit of Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11. I'll read them again. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord because he is more committed to keeping you worshiping him than you are. Trust him because he's sovereign over every detail of your life. Trust him because he's the only one that's able to save you and satisfy you. The Lord will bless us. He is our help and our shield. Let's praise the Lord together. Let's pray. 
God, we ask that you would make much of yourself by delighting our hearts in you. God, we know we don't always want what we need. We pray that you would help us to want you more, that we would see our need to be satisfied with your likeness, and that you would transform us more and more into the image image of Jesus together for your glory's sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.